The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to be together on our real winter night. Reflecting as we have these last few weeks, some of you maybe have heard the <coughs> excuse me, earlier talks in this sequence. And we've been reflecting in January and this month and probably through March, reflecting on the Buddha's teachings about path. And uh, I mentioned this morning in the talk that the Buddha never claimed to sort of invent or discover this path. He, w- he was, in a sense, as he said, rediscovering something that other people before him had uncovered which is just this, you know, what really changes a human life is when that human being realizes how functional it is to be aware. <laughs> it changes everything because it, it actually creates an alternative to my life just being some expression of habit because now I'm aware. So it's still my life, still driven by habit, but it starts to change because now I'm aware that the habitual impulse is like this. You know, it's one thing for you to trigger some reaction in me, but it's a really different thing when you trigger a reaction in me and there's some quality or some capacity in my heart that realizes you've triggered this reactive pattern in me and it feels like this, it looks like this. This is what, in a sense, is alive in me, right? And when I act out whatever you've triggered, how could you? You know, when I act it out, then I see what that's its emotion. I feel what kind of trace is left behind in my heart. In other words, I learn. But in another world where you trigger some reaction to me and I'm not mindfully aware, I might leave a trail of destruction, but I'm so, in a sense, wrapped up, identified with my reactive, my reactivity, I have no capacity for learning. I'm not sensing how my response was so unskillful or that my response was really skillful. There's no space of awareness that is basically connecting the dots. So I've been saying over these last few weeks that we become a wiser and in a sense more moral, ethical human being. We need that reflective, mindful presence. And we need to orient around like what trace, what's left over. This is how it's talked about in the in the early Buddhist tradition. One of the books that, uh, if you get the weekly email, um, Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager, when he lists these weekly practice groups like Sunday Nights Group, he's also putting the link to Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Noble Eightfold Path, The Way to the End of Suffering. Bhikkhu Bodhi is a Western Buddhist monk. He's done a lot of the important translating of these teachings from the early Buddhist tradition for us over the the last number of decades. And this book is just the summary of the Buddhist 
teachings about the Eightfold Path, which involves wisdom, wise view, and wise intention, and sila, this ethical conduct piece that we're talking about recently, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, and this part about the mind, which is usually called samadhi, but it involves wise kind of effort, efforting, wise mindful awareness, wise settledness, stability of mind, concentration. So these, this is the Eightfold Path, wisdom piece, the action piece, how we're relating, ethical conduct, and taking care of the ecology of the mind. Like, how's my mind doing? Settled or not so settled, right? So this, the path involves bringing awareness to our, the wisdom end of the spectrum, like what's, what's the view, what intentions are operating, the action relationship part of our lives, how am I relating to others? And the kind of grosser part of the mind, not so much the subtle level of view and intention, but just like, is the mind wild or is it settled? Is it distracted or is it clear? It's just that ecology or the weather of the mind right now. And we're bringing awareness to these three areas. So recently in this these talks, I'm really talking about how we can bring awareness to our actions. So this is from that book, Bhikkhu Bodhi's book that I mentioned. He's quoting the Buddha here. Practitioners, it is volition that I call action. So action here, volitional action, intentional action, that's that word karma or kama. Is it the Pali version Karma is the Sanskrit version of that word. So it actually just means action with intention. Practitioners, it is volition that I call action, karma. Having willed, one performs an action through body, speech, or mind. So that's the quote from the Buddha. And then he writes, the identification of kama or karma with volition, makes karma essentially a mental event, a factor originating in the mind, in the heart, which seeks to actualize the mind's drives, dispositions, and purposes. Volition comes into being through any of the three channels, body, speech, or mind, called the three doors of action. And then a little later in this section, he talks about um, when a, uh, he's quoting the Buddha again, when a noble disciple right, of the Buddhist teachings understands what is karmically unwholesome and the root of unwholesome action, what is karmically wholesome and the root of wholesome action, then they have right view. So this part of wisdom, you know, that I've been, I talked about earlier in January, and often the way I talked about it back then, if you weren't here, I, it's that insight. It's a real insight where we realize it matters. How I am, how I'm showing up, how I'm understanding matters. It's like one thing that we realize 
you know, it matters because somehow we realize how I am, who I am, how I act, how I think, how I view things. Like, I can go to hell and I can go to heaven. And I'm not talking about mythological heaven and hell. I'm talking about actual hell. Anybody not been in hell in your life? Right? Hopefully, you've had a few visits to heaven where things were really sweet and good, right? And easeful and light. And anybody not have some sense that when I got, when I ended up in hell, how I related, how I was thinking had something to do with ending up in hell, right? I mean, it's sort of interesting question. It is an interesting question. Can somebody actually send us to hell, a really heavy, intensely unpleasant mind state? Like even your partner, you know, if you're in an intimate relationship or a son or daughter or whatever, somebody, you know, who's got some connection to you, can they actually make you, force you to be in a really painful, mentally painful, emotionally painful state? Or do you have to participate to end up in hell? It's kind of an interesting question. I remember early on when I first got to know Joseph Goldstein as a teacher, uh, he, and I haven't really heard him talk about dissent, so this is back in the 90s, mid-90s maybe, and he said he was talking about a relationship, because I don't think he's been in a romantic relationship for a long, long time as far as I understand. Um, but back in the day, you know, he's one of the founders of Insight Meditation Society and an important teacher in this early Buddhism lineage that Common Ground is part of. He came out for our 25th anniversary a summer ago um, when we had a program. But anyway, he said something about a, an earlier relationship and uh, and I forget, I forget if he said that, you know, he was thinking that she made me suffer or she was saying to him, you made me suffer. But the Dharma point he was making in his talk was that idea, and very common idea, that someone can make us suffer. As opposed to, no, it doesn't mean that when I get myself into a really painful mental state, it doesn't mean that it's somehow unrelated to what you did to me. But one of the things that comes with um, practice is we realize that no matter what you do to me, I don't have to suffer. You may do something that's painful, but I can relate to the pain that you caused. Like you could insult me and some pain might arise because of what you said. And maybe there was some truth in what you said, so it really smarts in that way. But I could relate to that smart, to that ouch, with a lot of kindness, a lot of wisdom, and so I wouldn't call that suffering, I'd call that pain, but because I'm choosing not to resist it, not to be afraid of it, not to have to massage it in any way, I wouldn't call that suffering. So it was, just a, it was a, it really stood out that point that how 
that statement that you made me suffer, which is such a common, commonly accepted point of view, wasn't actually, didn't need to be true. Perhaps wasn't actually true, that we're responsible for suffering. And so that's something just to play with. That when we're suffering, the suffering is arising because something the mind, because of a habit maybe, has chosen to do. Chosen some idea it's attached to, some activity it's identified with. But you see, it's very skillful to um, think that way because then we do the one thing we can do. We look at how I might be contributing to my suffering. Because I can't change you very easily. And often it's counterproductive. You know, when we want the person who's ca- we think is causing us to suffer, you know, and we want to fix them so they don't bother us, right? How does that work? Not very well. And it's the same thing, not just with people, but like the world may be a particular way that really weighs your heart down. But is it the politics in the United States that's weighing your heart down? Or is it how the mind is relating to the politics in the United States that's weighing our hearts down? Is it the uh, climate crisis that's weighing your heart down? Or how your heart holds that or relates to that or understands that? Is it the fact that you're getting older or that you're sick, or how your mind relates to that. And so what I'm suggesting, and what I think the Buddha is suggesting, is it really matters how you uh, understand that, and just stay open, at least with some humility, that it might have a lot more to do with how I'm relating to the ups and downs in life than the actual ups and downs in life. So for example, just as a way to hold the path, you know, awakening might be much more about how I'm relating to ups and downs than avoiding, especially the downs. Because that could be a normal, ordinary strategy for life is like, I only want the ups, none of the downs. So I'm really bringing my intelligence, my competence to bear on avoiding all the downs. I don't want to age. I don't want any loss, any breakups, except for the people I want to leave, want out of my life. I only want the pleasant experiences. I only want in-breaths, no out-breaths. And, uh, I mean, that's, I mean, I'm being a little ridiculous, of course, but that's sort of our normal strategy. We're just uh, bringing our volition, volitional action or karmic action, action that have has consequences, right? To manage, to control condition, circumstance, so I get what I want and I don't get what I don't want. And what a spiritual path, and especially the path the Buddha lays out is all about, is understanding that things are going to go up and down. There will be pleasant times and unpleasant times. And yeah, Get involved in that to some degree, but don't imagine that that's really the cause for happiness or unhappiness. So we're really putting all our 
real effort or deep attention to how I'm relating to the ups and downs and what are the consequences related to how I'm relating. So, oh, I'm relating this way. You're treating me this way. You look like you're falling asleep, right? So I could like really speak louder and throw in a few jokes, tap dance. (laughs) You know, it's like wake you up somehow. Or I could notice the feeling I feel when it seems that people are getting sleepy or something like that, you know. And I could notice what's underneath that reaction, like wanting to be liked or something like that, or fear of not being good enough. I knew it. I'm not really, I shouldn't be doing this. (laughs) I knew it. Why did, why did I say yes? So, the, and that can lead to real panic, right? So we can make peace with all of that hellish stuff, like not be afraid. I mean, it's so powerful when we see the hellish conditions, mental, emotional conditions start to show up, and their wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is like a beautiful alchemy that just turns it into deep healing. I bet most people have had something like that experience where something in your life triggered some old pattern that was really heavy and had some like deep strings into the past. You know, when you were a teenager, when you were a young adult, like how you really could suffer, really be in a dark, difficult place. And so something triggers that, but now, because of living and becoming a wiser human being, you face it with that stability of present moment awareness, that wisdom and kindness, right? Oh, oh, whoa, this is coming up for me right now. This is what I'm, this is what's showing up for me. And there's some space in my mind. I'm not immediately identified, immediately selfing around this emotional pattern that's gotten triggered, I'm actually curious. See, that curiosity comes from having some space around it where, and in Buddhism we call it like the space of realizing that that heavy pattern that feels so real, so much like me, is not self. It's arising as a natural phenomena. It's there being felt in the body, in the heart, in the mind, But it's not self. In a sense, and this isn't perfect language, in a sense, the self is the one who knows that this is coming up. Is the wisdom. It's not really the self. But it's like, from an egoic point of view, the ego is identified with being the one who knows. Oh, it's like this. That old uh, panic is showing up. It feels like this, looks like this. And that alchemy I'm talking about is that wisdom, compassion that in a sense holds its its grounds. Like, I'm not afraid of this emotional, mental wave of terror. I'm not afraid of it coming in. And in a sense, it just keeps going. So it's not like we don't feel the yuckiness 
That's the key. As long as you're still negotiating with pain, you're screwed. As a as somebody who doesn't want to suffer, right? As long as you realize, as as long as there's a little thread, so your the mind wisdom is interested, like this really is painful, but I'm not so sure because it's painful that it that the moment requires resistance. Right? See, that's the difference. The control mode, where we're interested in controlling the conditions of the present moment versus the wisdom mode, the love mode, which is I'm more interested in how I should relate to the conditions than imagining that I need to control or manage or run from the conditions. And what we're exploring is relating to it as nature. Yeah, it's really painful, but the pain isn't personal. It's real, but not personal. It's real, but it's not. it doesn't harm a me. See, this is why we're caught in this, uh, all of these unskillful reactions to joy and sorrow, because the highs and the lows we think are me, and therefore we think it requires a response, a personal response to hold the pleasant and to resist the pain. But what wisdom understands is that way of relating doesn't help. That way of relating is stressful. So it tries relating a different way, which is being undefended, like letting the pleasure come and go, not holding on to the joys letting the pain of loss, for example, come and go, not resisting the pain. And this really allows us, it sort of shows the way, like in terms of action. You know, like a lot of our, (coughs) (laughs) there's a beautiful poem I read this morning, I think I'll read it again, from Nikki Giovanni. Some of you know a, a really beautiful poet. I don't know the title of this poem. I killed a spider, not a murderous brown recluse, nor even a black widow. And if the truth were told, this was only a small sort of papery spider who should have run when I picked up the book, but she didn't. And she scared me, and I smashed her. I don't think I'm allowed to kill something because I'm frightened. It's such a powerful little poem. And uh, it's so real, you know, just that uh, acknowledgement, you know, of... And then that, that recognition, yeah. I don't think just because I was afraid I had rights to smash that thing. And this is the, this is the, you know, we're developing this stability of awareness, this wisdom that it matters who I am, how I'm showing up, how I'm relating, and this instinct to control, to eliminate whatever scares me and to hold on and make it mine, anything that's pleasant. 
But that's how we justify all the little and big ways we steal, all the little and big ways we cause others harm, speak words that cause harm, right? Because we don't know the other way, which is to be willing to feel. Like when my wife, my partner, acts in a way that causes me harm, it really helps when I'm willing to feel what it feels like to not be treated the way I want to be treated. Because if I don't know how to feel that yucky feeling, then I take it out on her, right? I shoot barbs. Whether I do it with my thoughts or with my words or with my actions, right? And then when I shoot barbs, well, what does that set in motion? You know, we have a little war going on. And this is what happens all the time. It's like we, you know, somebody insults somebody, then they have to insult them back. And we have these lawsuits, these wars, and obviously big-time wars. Now imagine if something bad happens and we're totally, we've developed this capacity just to feel how yucky it is when we're betrayed, when we're mistreated, when there's injustice or, you know, toward us or toward another person. We're, we know how to inhabit that space to really feel how wrong it is, how painful it is. But we're not afraid to feel what that feels like. Then the choice of what to say, what to think, what to do isn't arising because we don't know how to feel what we're feeling. Then what we think, what we say, and what we do arises because of it being helpful, like in the direction of alleviating the suffering instead of I can't stand to feel what I'm feeling, so I'm going to say this to you, or I'm going to think this about you, or I'm going to do this to you. This sort of evenness is so useful when we're around real joy and real suffering. You know, actually, in some ways, we we get better at being with being wise around suffering than we do when things are going well. Notice that, how disorienting it is when things are going really well in our lives. We don't know what, how to sort of let the joy in and keep going and not, may, not out of habit feel compelled to make up something about it. Like somebody says something really nice to us we kind of want to build that castle in the sky about me as opposed to that, you know, that was something nice. It feels like this and it just keeps going. Because wisdom understands there's nobody to feed on that nice statement. There's nobody. It's only stressful to construct a somebody who's going to hold on to that or become somebody because of that statement or because of that nice thing. It just is suffering. And to let it go feels so light. To not be dependent on the good things that come our way feels really free. doesn't mean our life, it's not like we're, anything has changed, 
except we're not clinging to the good things that happen to us. We're not holding tight. We're not imagining there's me who's dependent on it. So then we have to protect it. You know, it's like one of the setups for something good happening is, like if I'm holding, like several of you come up to me afterwards and just are really appreciative of the talk, and let's say that triggers a kind of conceit like, oh, wow, you know, my teaching's really getting good and people are really benefiting, and I get identified with that. Well, then I become more vulnerable to you yawning, you know, the next night, right? Because it's like, now I've built this castle of me who's this impactful teacher, and then if somebody leaves a little bit early or yawns or there's a smaller crowd, like, I'm sure it's the snow that there's a smaller (laughs) crowd tonight. It's like we get really fragile in that way. But that fragility, the pain is precisely because the mind clung to the high. And if we don't cling to the high, we're not as vulnerable to, to the lows. So the idea is to be porous to everything, all the highs, all the lows. And it's not the same as repression or <clears throat> somehow distancing ourselves. We actually feel the highs more because we're not bothering, we're not getting distracted by building up some identity around the high. So we're just there in that raw sensitivity We're just not clinging to it. So we're more vulnerable, in a sense, more sensitive to the highs and lows. Not distant. Oh, no, you know, someone's praising you and we're going, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear it. No, we're just totally receptive. We know it for what it is. Somebody is saying this and it feels like this. And completely undefended, open, raw, willing to feel what comes our way, praise and blame. Okay, this is the praise. I'm going to really receive it. This is the blame. I'm going to receive it. I'm not going to be afraid. So uh, here are the ten areas the Buddha says to pay attention, you know, where the ways of being wholesome, ways of being unwholesome. And the idea is to meet this with wisdom and love, not to try to control. So notice as I go through this list that we want to be on the positive side of this list. But the way to be on the positive side of the list, you know, the wholesome side of things, is to be willing to see clearly that when an unwholesome pattern has arisen, right, to notice the ouch of it. Oh, yeah, now it feels like this. So even like an un, you triggering something unwholesome in me, it's not so different than you being unwholesome to me, right? The same practice. It's like I'm going to receive my own negativity in the same way I'm going to receive your negativity. And I'm going to receive my own wisdom and love in the same way I'm going to receive your wisdom and love. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be aware. I'm going to see everything, my wisdom and ignorance, your wisdom and ignorance, as nature, 
as stuff that comes and goes according to innumerable causes and conditions. That's what nature is. Stuff that comes and goes dependent on innumerable causes and conditions. Everything is nature. And so I'm willing to see these ten things. So the first three are the three of the precepts that we talked about briefly last week. right? So these are called the ten courses of unwholesomeness. That's how it gets translated. And, of course, the ten courses of wholesome action. Destroying life, unwholesome. Revering life, valuing well-being is wholesome, right? So to just to see both of those coming your way when you feel justified in smashing the spider, just let that in. Okay. Or when you revere that's a, that papery spider has rights. I don't have rights to kill that spider. Where can I help you go so that we live in harmony together, right? The next one, taking what's not given, you know, stinginess, not being content, not living in a simple way versus valuing simplicity, valuing contentedness with what we have, valuing generosity. So just to see those, get to know those two. Wrong conduct in regard to sense pleasure. So... Often in the precepts, this third one is about not acting out our sexuality in ways that cause harm, but it's just more general, like around things that are very pleasurable. How do we relate to it? Because some things in life are very pleasurable. So what's the skillful way to relate? To be afraid of real pleasure, is that skillful? No, it's called being tight or being repressed, right? But being totally dependent, justifying whatever we have to justify in order to get that pleasure, well, that clearly leads to tremendous suffering in the world. When you think about how much suffering gets set in motion around our sexual activities, I mean, it's, I mean, even even when you're having a relatively healthy sexual relationship with another human being, there's so much suffering. <laughs> Do they like me? You know, Do they like that? Or whatever. It's just so much suffering. So we, it makes so much sense that we want to really be aware, especially in these impactful areas like sexuality. Be awake. How's that, how's that, you know, working for all of us? <laughs> what's the trace? What's left over? What's getting triggered or what's arising? Because we're taking refuge and seeing it clearly, not pretending we know, right? All of these areas like taking the stuff and how, you know, it's, we live in a world where life eats life. I mean, that's really the definition of this human, not just the human world, but just living on this planet, right? It's all built on life eating life. So to um, be interested in causing harm, 
but we don't want to be idealistic about this. We're going to step on toes. It doesn't matter if you're a vegan or a carnivore or somewhere in between. It just comes with the territory of being a living being. But we can still revere life. Right? We can still um, cultivate contentment and simplicity and generosity. We can still relate to sense pleasures in ways that don't leave a trail of destruction because we care about our own well-being and the well-being of others. So those are the three related to action. Now the next four relate to speech. Speaking the truth versus not speaking the truth. Using words, even truthful words, as a weapon to put somebody down. Right? You can speak the truth or at least partial truths, but really use it to screw somebody. Slander, right? Even if it's true, can be very destructive, you know, especially the selective truth. Certainly lying about somebody to cause harm. So using words as weapons versus speaking in ways that support uh, the coming together or the healing of divisions. So am I speaking in way in a way to cause division or to heal division? That's the second part of why speech. Truthfulness to heal or to cause division. Harsh versus you know words that are suitable for the moment. You know, there's ways that we use a kind of the loudness and harshness and abrasiveness of our words. I, I kind of, when I look at it or notice it in myself, it's more, it's like wanting to be seen or wanting to have power. We kind of act it out by being sort of loud and obnoxious or abrasive or calling attention to ourselves. It doesn't mean that we always have to speak in gentle ways. I mean, if somebody we loved was in danger, we'd use a lar- any kind of voice, basically, that would get their attention. So it's, it's really about the suitableness of the tone, loudness, harshness of our words. What's that about? And then the fourth area of why speech has to do with idle speech. Like, are the words I'm speaking an improvement on silence? Because we sometimes talk and we can read, it's a kind of stealing where we're just sort of talking because we're afraid to be alone and we don't want the person to go. And we know as soon as we stop talking, the person's going to leave. You know, and it, nobody likes that. So just to understand like, okay, what, what's the purpose of this? Is it useful speech? Or is there some other agenda here that I might want to be clearer about? So that's the four. So we have the three courses of wholesome and unwholesome action related to actual deeds, actions, physical actions. The four related to speech. And the last three are related to thought. Because wholesomeness has to do with action, words, and thought. Because even unskillful thoughts leave an impression, right? If I'm stewing with greed, if I'm totally like looking at all the clothes I'd like to have for myself, 
or I'd like, you know, to be able to sit like you or, you know, whatever we covet. We can be spinning about that. Look at the nice cars in the parking lot, nice bikes people have. Where'd you get that haircut? So that that leaves an impression and it also is a bit contagious. Like if we're around somebody who's totally jazzed about getting, 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 it sort of like triggers that in us, doesn't it? Like, I don't want to be left behind, you know? If they're excited about it, maybe maybe that will make me happy if I have it too. Somebody talks about a new healer. I saw this shaman on Saturday. Someone was telling me, I saw this shaman on Saturday. It was like this. It's like, oh, I'm going to see that shaman. <laughs> I want somebody to tell me what's wrong with me <laughs> or how to be happy or something like that. So that greed is contagious. So there's karmic uh, consequences to stewing with greed, just like there's karmic consequences to stewing with ill will and aversion and fear. When we're really angry, rageful, self-righteous, fearful, and it not only causes us to hurt, to be contracted, but it it stimulates that same kind of mental activity in others. And then the third course of mental unskillfulness has to do with deluded thinking. Thinking that stuff doesn't matter is a, an example of deluded thinking. Oh, what the hell? doesn't matter. Well, yeah, it does matter. So, And when people have that lackadaisical, it doesn't matter. You know, oh yeah, I took that, but it's it's just, you know, it's owned by that corporation. That's a, you know, corporations are evil. It's okay to take those things. I couldn't believe, like, some of the things I did at my first job. I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but, you know, I, uh, it was, you know, a management consulting firm. They had a lot of money, so I said to myself, <laughs> But, you know, when I left, I took the dictionary. You know, I had my office and I had the dictionary and took some pencils and pens and, you know, but it was just what's interesting um, is just how easy it was for my mind to rationalize taking that dictionary. This is before the Internet, for those of you who can't (laughs) conceive of it. (laughs) You know, just... uh, just that sort of idea that, you know, well, it's okay. You know, all those so, sort of things. So just to start owning these actions of action, speech, and mind, and to have a sense of skillful and unskillful, and that discernment is really based on the trace that's left over. That's how we actually know. Well, how does it feel? Having thought that, having said that, having done that, how does it feel? It's not what other people think, actually, although wise friends can help us feel what we're, notice what we're feeling, right? But they can't tell us whether that was skillful or unskillful. I mean, they do tell us, but it's not so helpful. What's helpful is to develop the stability of awareness that knows, I don't care what anybody says, what I just said or thought or did doesn't feel good. I don't care what anybody says, what I just said, did, or thought, it feels pretty clean. 
it feels like there's not much of a trace, as much as I can tell. I still have some humility. Maybe I'm not really feeling as sensitively as I can, but I don't re- I feel pretty light about that. And that's what a good friend would ask. Like they say, oh, God, I just had this incredible interaction. I really had to speak up. I was, you know, I said things I can't believe I said. A wise friend would say, well, here, just, you know, sit down. Let's take a walk or let's. And then w- once we're said, like, well, what does it feel like having said that? What's left over in your heart? What impression is still reverb? What impressions might still be reverberating? Does it feel light or heavy? Is there remorse? Is there a sense of well done? You know, not not a pride even, but just like I'm. Uh, when there's real wisdom, it's it's like this appreciation for the wisdom. But the wisdom doesn't even feel personal. I'm just so happy there was that much clarity because I could have said this other thing, but I didn't. I refrained from saying that. And in that space of refraining from the bigger impulse, right, the old habit energy, because there was enough wisdom to refrain, then that opened a space where the mind recognized other possibilities of what to think, what to say, and what to do. And I did some of that stuff. And I'm so appreciative. So often, like, the aftertaste of being skillful is just gratitude that we didn't fall into the holes we might have fallen into. I'm so grateful. I mentioned this a couple times, you know, like, when my parents, my second parent, my dad died after my mom, you know, but and it was pretty close, just a year and a half later. And just that feeling of having been a good enough son in terms of showing up and being relatively skillful and helping them in their final years. And just that, like it could have been bad, you know, between the siblings and the parents, between the parents and me. But looking and just being really grateful that the aftertaste, besides just the the pain of loss was feeling clean, like not a lot of baggage. And I was so grateful for that, still am. And again, it wasn't like extraordinary or I don't see myself as some kind of saint and sort of how I handled it. It was pretty ordinary, I think. But I'm really grateful because it could have been otherwise and it wasn't. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to we'll come back to this. And in particular, next Sunday I'll be leading a retreat, so it'll be two Sundays from now. But we'll talk more specifically about why speech. We'll dig in a little bit more. But just look at these ten areas and be nice. We have seven minutes or so. Please stay to the end so that you hear the comments people have or questions. But your own reflections about this place where you have some stability of awareness and some sensitivity. And you really learned, like feeling what you feel, like, oh, that was unskillful or that was skillful. And just developing that very earthy wisdom of sila, ethical conduct. Yeah, would like to begin. What have you been learning? What comes to mind? Yeah, Julia, please, could you pass it? Thanks. <coughs> 
all the way to the back row there. Uh, thanks, Mark, very much for your talk today. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I've heard you talk about pleasure and how that's a challenging place for us, and I've been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then tonight I saw the moon, as maybe some of you did, and I saw the moon last night as well. And, um, oh, it's just stunning, 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 pleasurable, pleasurable. But there was a little yuckiness at the same time, and I didn't, I wasn't able to name it until you talked about it tonight, which is I wanted to hold on to it. Yeah. Like, maybe I won't even go to the center. I'll just sit here and, <laughs> I won't even go to Common Ground. I'll just sit here and watch the moon all night. Like, that actually came, like, what the? So, um, thank you for that teaching tonight. It's, um, I know what that feels like. And that word porous, very helpful. Like, how can I allow those pleasurable things in and just, okay, bye-bye. Yeah, that was a nice moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That we can't actually feed on it. We can only let it in, let it touch the heart and keep going. But we can't feast on it. And that's what we want to do with beauty. And we have, you know, that's like with... Uh, photographs or beautiful art too it's always a little interesting art collecting and i you know i really like having beautiful things around me but i'm really noticing that as finally you know uh, common ground used to be in the place where my partner and i live it's in a, a storefront just to the east of here a little bit and uh since common ground moved out into this building more than 10 years ago we've been slowly fixing up this old 1908 building and now it like it feels pretty comfortable it's it's a pretty comfortable place for two people when the center was there and we lived there too it was not okay but now it's okay it feels really nice and i and i realize that if it burnt down or disappeared i'm attached it would hurt and the question how to have something so nice because for so many years you know, we kind of, we lived like uh, college students. You know, we had a little space, and there's all this sort of semi-public everything, and and now it feels like we're grown-ups. And I realize I like it. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm sort of middle class. I have a house. It's really nice. We have a backyard. We have a cat. You know, we have comfortable chairs, and it, and then I, and then the that sort of like, oh, there's a certain. Then I deserve it, or it would be wrong for this to be taken away. Now, I'm not saying that something bad should happen, but I want to be prepared that if something, for whatever reason, it went away, I could deal with it. It's the same with our health, you know. Nothing wrong with being healthy, but are we ready for it to go away? And how to really receive the health we have knowing it can go away? How to have the wealth we have in whatever form, the intelligence, the clarity, eyesight, knowing it can go away. And not afraid of it going away. Even a life, knowing it can go away. Yeah, thanks, Julia. We have time for one more person to share. 
other reflections from your own life that you'd like to bring into the group? Yeah, please. You want to pass it over to Jonathan? Um, I guess my question is... um, Maybe a little closer, Jonathan. My question is, like, how do you deal with uncertainty or, like, about your future or something that that really, like, bothers you or something? I learned, like, you have to be okay instead of being unguarded, like, feel it that uncertainty and having like three, four options about the decision process or something that you have to make. But yeah, I, I'm just curious if you have any Yeah, so when we, the thing about the future and in general becoming energy, it's actually just another sense experience. So what gets in the way of doing what needs to be done, the actual choices, the actual work that needs to be done in life, Of course, that leads to the future. But the problem is that as we're doing that work, we're imagining this good thing happening. And it's like a pleasurable experience arises. That idea, oh, I could, this could happen to me. So then that wave of pleasure comes in. And so we have to practice with meeting that wave of pleasure, being intimate, but not confused by it it not trigger a grasping. Because if it triggers grasping, then the filling out the application or making the next phone call or whatever the next activity that we have to do in this moment, it gets charged because now I'm the person who's dependent on that good thing happening. right? Because I didn't know how to receive the pleasure as just a wave that kept going. And that's the thing. It's like even having to pee. Maybe you have to pee now. And he keeps talking. (laughs) But it's sort of like to feel the sensation. But if I start to think about, oh, God, when I get to that toilet, it becomes unbearable because we become the person who needs to get rid of that pain. But the pain itself is actually often workable. But the story we construct around pleasure and pain, often not workable, too much. But in case you do have to pee, let's end. (laughs) We'll just take a few seconds, just enough time to have a moment or two of silence together for a breath. Allow everything to settle, let go of the words. Feeling at home in the silence. Thanks for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org